Our Father, we thank you again for your word, for the way that it does refresh us, for the way that it does renew us, for the way that it convicts us, for the way that it confronts us, for the truth that it presents. And we thank you, Lord, that all these things are in accordance with your sovereign will, that we would study your word and that we would understand your word and that your word would impact our lives, that it would help us along the journey, but also that it would nourish our souls and instruct us in a way to live in a way that's pleasing to you. So we pray, Lord, that as we come to your word, give us understanding. Help us to see how this applies, how it relates to us in this fallen and dark world, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have your Bible with you, we will be continuing our study today in the gospel according to John. So go ahead and turn to John chapter 1. We are only going to be covering the same verse that we covered last time, except we only really covered the first half of the verse last time. So we'll be looking at the second half of that verse today, uh, verse 14. Um, It's been said that of all of the most beautiful things and all of the most interesting things and, and admirable characters and things in the history of the world, none of them demands more intent None of them demands more thoughtful gazing as Jesus Christ does. Think about something beautiful. Let's take a, a, a sunset, for example. Uh, it's, it's hard to argue with the fact that, that uh, a sunset can be absolutely captivating. And so when, when, you're, when you're captivated by a beautiful sunset, the beauty is such that you, you don't want to look away. There's nothing else that that has your attention in that moment. You are drawn completely to that sunset. So what do you do? Well, if if you're like most people, you you have a a camera in your phone, so you take a selfie with the the sunset in the background, or you just try to get a picture of the sunset itself, but you soon realize that even the best picture that you could possibly get doesn't do justice to the real thing. Or, you know, if you go to an art gallery, you'll find people staring in deep thought at various works of art. Maybe they'll be captivated by the incredible attention to detail. Uh, Maybe they'll just be trying to figure out exactly what it is. Maybe they're wondering what was going through the artist's mind as they created this, this beautiful or this exquisite or even this confusing work of art that has hooked their attention. Or if you're a fan of reading fiction or watching movies. I mean, how many fan sites are there out there that delve into the depths of even fictional characters, all in an attempt to understand that character more fully? I mean, how many hundreds of hours, thousands of hours, go into analyzing the character to the deepest depths possible? And if that's true of fictional characters, how much more true is it of actual historical characters. I mean, how many books are there out there on the life of somebody like Abraham Lincoln? 
And, and how many could there possibly be before we say, okay, we've written from every perspective, we've covered every truth that we could possibly have? I mean, think about it. It's, it's really, really a deep subject. But what we learn with so many of these things is that the more we, we start to grasp them, the more there is to grasp. The, the more dimensions there are to consider and to learn about. And yet, this is more true of Christ than it is of any of these other things. It's more true of Christ than it is of anything or anyone else. All these things do have a way of captivating us, of drawing us in and taking our attention for us to to understand them. But all of them, every single one, pales in comparison to Christ Jesus. And none of them are as worthy of our gaze and consideration as he is. And that's one reason that we have really, really taken our time with this prolegomena of John's gospel, this introductory uh, passage of John's gospel. Uh, There's just an incredible amount of information specifically about the nature and the attributes and the characteristics of Jesus being revealed in so few verses. But the importance of getting these things right simply cannot be understated because, as John MacArthur once said, it is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as it is to believe in no Jesus. We say that again. It is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as it is to believe in no Jesus. And that's true. If you believe in a Jesus who is fully God but not fully man, that's heresy. That is not the Jesus of Scripture. If you believe that Jesus is fully man, but not fully God, same thing. If you believe that Jesus is a created being, same thing. I mean, the easiest way to affirm or to to grasp a, a false gospel is to have a false understanding of who Christ is, a Christ that doesn't line up with what Scripture reveals about Him. And so as we approach our text today, we're going to be looking at the single most succinct and the deepest statement in all of Scripture on the incarnation of Christ. But I want to warn you in advance that this is a subject that requires an extreme amount of caution because almost every ancient heresy was related in some way to a misunderstanding about the nature of Christ. The only exception I can think of uh, in, in which a, an ancient heresy had nothing to do really with the nature of Christ was Pelagianism, which is a denial of man's uh, original sin, and it's a, it's a denial of, of our fallen condition. But consider a man named Theodotus the Tanner who was a philosopher in the late 2nd century who promoted a heresy that came to be known as adoptionism, which teaches that, ultimately, Jesus was just a man, but he was a good man. In fact, he was the best man, Theodotus affirmed. And the reason we should follow Jesus, according to Theodotus, is because God tested the man, Jesus, And when Jesus passed, God gave Jesus supernatural powers and abilities and adopted him as his son. And so the resurrection, according to this teaching, according to adoptionism, the resurrection was really just Jesus' reward and the finalization of the process of adoption by God. Wrong. 
that is absolutely wrong. And our text today will show us that this is absolutely wrong. Uh, then there was another group, not, uh, not too far in time away from that. Uh, they were called uh, docetists, or docetism uh, is what it's called. And that word is derived from the Greek word, which means to seem or to appear. And because they believed that everything, these Gnostic philosophers, they believed that everything that was physical or material was evil, their heresy was to claim that Jesus, as fully God, couldn't have actually taken on human flesh. He couldn't have actually become a physical, material being. Rather, he just seemed to take on flesh. And so for them, Jesus was still fully God, But not only was he not fully man, he wasn't man at all. He only seemed to be. He only appeared to be. Kind of like a a magic trick or an illusion. Again, this idea is completely false, and our text today is going to render this idea completely false. I mean, so do you see what I mean? We have to be careful with these details about Christ. We need to be very careful when we're talking about the nature of Christ, because it's really easy to get it wrong if we're just left to ourselves to guess or to fill in the blanks. Because if you believe in a Jesus who is different from the Jesus of the Bible, you're just talking about a figment of your imagination. If you want a Jesus who doesn't care if you sin, if you want a Jesus who really doesn't care if you obey, if you want a Jesus who doesn't care if you grow in, in practical and personal piety, in, your, in holiness, I mean, it seems to me that you'd just be better off putting your faith in Santa Claus or the Easter Bunny or the Tooth Fairy. So we're going to be looking again today at chapter 1, verse 14. And the point of the second half of this verse is that because Jesus alone is fully God in human flesh, Only Jesus reveals the grace and truth of God. Because Jesus alone is fully God in human flesh, only Jesus fully reveals the grace and truth of God. So let's look once again at chapter 1, verse 14. It says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. This verse is actually the last time that John is going to use the word, or the the phrase, the word, in reference to Jesus, which started all the way back uh, in, in verse 1. So uh, with that said, this is kind of an inclusio. This, this ends that, uh, that specific section of the text. Uh, but we've already seen in this verse that the word that gets translated as dwelled actually points back to the tabernacle from the Old Testament. It's John's way of saying that the fullness of God in the second person of the Trinity stepped out of eternity. He took on flesh and became just as human as you and I are. The great uh, church father Athanasius said this. He said, he became what we are that he might make us what he is. Or J.C. Ryle, uh, he said this, he said, quote, The name Emmanuel takes in the whole mystery. Jesus is God with us. He had a nature like our own in all things, sin only accepted. But though Jesus was with us in human flesh and blood, he was at the very same time very God. 
end quote. So this baby, this baby who was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary was not a human who one day would become God, uh, something that can be ascribed or or found in in pagan and, and mythological gods. No, this baby who was in Mary's womb was the true, eternal, everlasting God who took on flesh and became fully human, fully God and fully human. Anybody know what that's called, that doctrine's called? I know Jordan does. Hypostatic union, right? Hypostatic union. But we call this the incarnation, when God took on flesh, when the second person of the Trinity took on flesh. But there are other names that are appropriate for it as well, such as the condescension of Christ or the humiliation of Christ. Those are a couple terms that I've heard in reference to the incarnation. But we also saw in our last lesson that you might call it the tabernacling of Christ as well. The tabernacle, of course, was the glory of Israel, and it was, uh, it was to be placed in their midst, in the center of their camp, and it represented the glory of God in the midst of his people. And we saw that we can be sure that this is what John was alluding to, not only because of the, the fact that the word dwelled literally means tabernacled, but also because John says that they saw his glory. And that's exactly what the tabernacle represented. So John goes on to describe that glory in the second part of this verse. Even though words cannot really uh, fully describe or do justice to the glory of God, to the glory that John beheld, and which, which we too behold when our gaze is set upon Christ. And so John says glory, describing this glory that he saw, glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. This actually introduces us to a word that isn't necessarily central to John's theology or central to, uh, to John's testimony, um, but it is nevertheless deeply significant. And the word uh, that I'm talking about is the word that gets translated as only begotten. We have other verses where we find that, like John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, the Greek word is monogonase, monogonase, which reveals some very important information about Jesus. Because for some people, especially in English, it's very easy to see this term, uh, this term only begotten and think that that means that Jesus must have been created. But the Greek word monogonase doesn't carry that implication at all. The point that John's trying to make by using this word, the point is that this word carries the implication of uniqueness, not of createdness. We find this word uh, given to uh, or used in reference to other people who only had one child. So John is saying that Jesus Christ is the unique, the one-of-a-kind revelation of God and all of his glory in the flesh. There is nothing and there is no one else upon whom we can set our gaze and see what is only found in Christ. I mean, we call Christians children of God, right? We we talk about being adopted, and and, and so that's true, but there is a, a different sense in which it's used of us than it is of Christ. Uh, none of us are children of God in the same sense that Jesus is 
the only begotten, the unique, the one-of-a-kind Son of God. Nobody is like Christ. Nobody. Nobody except the Father. And thus Jesus alone can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Now some people might say, well, what do you mean by eternal Son? Uh, how is that even possible that somebody would be a son eternally? Because to have a son means, in human terms, it means you have a, a biological father, which means that you, uh, you had a starting point. So what exactly is an eternal son? And actually, I, I'll, I'll point to, the, uh, to what uh, St. Augustine said to answer this question. He said, show me and explain to me an eternal father, and I will show you and explain to you an eternal son. End quote. So there you go. That, that kind of settles it, right? But this actually became, this word led to an issue that became uh, very significant for the church when a man named Arius, who taught that, uh, that Jesus was a created being and who was not fully God, started gaining popularity at one point. And so what happened is the, the church ended up drafting what we call the Nicene Creed, which clarifies for us that Jesus is, quote, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. And this is a vital distinction to be made because it is as damning to believe in the wrong Jesus as it is to believe in no Jesus. So we have to understand that Jesus has no equal among men. Nobody else can do for us what Christ has done. Jesus has no equal among the angels. Nobody, nothing can do for us what Christ alone was qualified to do for us. Nobody else can reconcile us to God. Only Jesus can. Nobody else can take the wrath of God in our place. Only Jesus can. Nobody else can offer intercessory prayer at the the throne of the Father on our behalf. Nobody only Jesus. Not Mary, not the saints, only Jesus. And this is why I say that it's really important that we get Jesus right. Here's the thing. See, if you you and I, if we all came together and decided that we would come up with the best idea we possibly could for a Savior the best minds in all of human existence, the best minds on the human spectrum couldn't have given us a better, more thorough, more qualified, more pure, more just, more faithful Savior. So why are we all so prone? Why is anybody so prone to follow lesser ideas or lesser versions of Jesus, which really boil down to being figments of our imagination? The London Baptist Confession of 1689 addresses this dilemma, which is present in every generation. There are always people who get Jesus wrong. And we have to understand that it has something to do with sin. So the London Baptist Confession of uh, 1689, in chapter 13, paragraph 2, says this of our sanctification. Remember, sanctification is God saving us from the power of sin. 
It's not him saving us from uh, the penalty of sin. That's justification. Uh, Sanctification is the time that passes between justification, when God saves us from the penalty of sin, and glorification, when God removes us from the presence of sin. In other words, sanctification, if you are a Christian, sanctification is where you are right now, if you are a Christian. But it says this, the London Baptist Confession of 1689, chapter 3, paragraph 2 says, This sanctification is throughout the whole man, yet imperfect in this life. There abideth still some remnants of corruption in every part, whence ariseth a continual and irreconcilable war, the flesh lusting against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. End quote. So why are we prone to get Jesus wrong? Because of sin. Because while we've been justified, there's still a remnant of sin within us that would have us at least wish that God would be just like us. That's why God has to correct that type of thinking and say, I'm not like you. See, this is why coming to church once in a while while it's, it's better than coming never, it's not enough. This is why reading your Bible once in a while, again, it's better than never reading it, but it's really not enough. I mean, do you realize how prone you are to wander? Do you realize how easy it is for worldly philosophies and ideologies to start invading your worldview, your, a biblical worldview, and to start uh, permeating it and taking it over? Do you realize how easy it is to start thinking of Jesus as being less than he really is? Do you realize how easy it is for us to take our eyes completely off of Jesus and to put them on all the the beautiful and, and glittery things of this world that seem so neat and so important and so beautiful, but which pale in comparison to Christ? See, when you behold Christ, you're seeing just a glimpse of that sunset that you can't take your eyes off of. We see, although dimly, right? In glory, we we will see Christ as He fully is and we'll become like Him. And it'll be like beholding the most beautiful sunset you can imagine times a million, I mean, times infinity. We, We won't want to take our eyes off of it, but now we see, although dimly, And we're prone to take our eyes off of Christ. The glory that John and the apostles saw is the same glory that you and I see when we set our gaze on Christ. A glory that can be seen in Christ alone. It's a glory that captivates us, that bewilders us, but it's also a glory that confronts us. It draws us. It changes us and sometimes change is not only necessary, but extremely painful. But you don't see this glory of Jesus in a Jesus that is different from the Jesus of the Bible. That's because Jesus alone is fully God in human flesh. And because he is, only Jesus reveals the grace and the truth of God. And this is how John describes Jesus, full of grace and truth. See what he says there at the end of the verse? And it's not, he, he's not saying that Jesus has 
grace and truth, although he certainly does. He's not saying that Jesus teaches grace and truth, although he absolutely does. No, it's that he is filled with grace and truth. He is, by the essence of his nature, grace and truth. It's an essential part of who he is, unlike you or unlike me or any other created being or thing. Not only are these not aspects of our nature, But our nature is actually opposed to grace. Our nature is actually opposed to truth. We're inclined by nature to do things like hate and to fight or to seek vengeance, to seek revenge, uh, to, to go to war, to murder. We're inclined by nature to lie. We're inclined by nature to cheat and to completely reject what's true. Because there might be consequences if that's true. There might be consequences we might have to change. There may not be a generation, friends, in all of Western civilization of which this is more true than ours. We live in a time when people say completely illogical things like, this is my truth. Or, that's your truth. How how many of you guys have heard somebody say that? This is my truth, or that's your truth. Yeah. But is that just your truth? See, that's the question, right? And it's because people are really uh, asking the same question and having the same attitude as Pilate when when Pilate asked Jesus uh, about him. and, And Jesus said this. He said, you are correct that I am a king. For this I have been born, and for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. It's from John chapter 18, verse 38. And Pilate didn't want to have anything to do with it. So what does Pilate say? He immediately dismisses Jesus, and he flippantly says, what is truth? And walks away. And that's the same attitude that people have with truth today. What is truth? I mean, it's a good question. What is truth? And a lot of people say, you know, truth is, uh, is perspective. But that statement defies logic because when you apply the definition of, uh, of truth to that statement, all you can really say is, it's my perspective that perspective is truth. But is truth determined by your perspective, or is there even possibly something real and true outside of your perspective? Of course there is. Otherwise, there would be no such thing as learning, right? Truth is not perspective. Truth is what is real. And your perspective has nothing at all to do with truth other than your ability to perceive and know and accept what is true. But in an age of the embracing of subjectivism and relativism, the idea that Jesus alone is full of truth, not a truth, not his truth, but the truth, that is a radical, radical, revolutionary, contrarian thing to say. And if you want to see the consequences of the rejection of truth, of objective, absolute truth, 
Let me tell you about a conversation I had with an elderly woman outside of Planned Parenthood recently. Her argument, this is, this is an elderly lady, her argument was, my body, my choice. We've all heard that, right? And my response was that no, scientifically speaking, that is not your body. That baby in your stomach has its unique uh, blood. It has its unique DNA. It is not your body. And further, if, uh, if, if the baby is born, it's not like you're losing part of your body. Nobody says that. Nobody believes that. It's not your body. It's a human being. And her response, aside from spitting at me, Again, keep in mind, this is an old lady. I mean, over 70, uh, I would guess. Her response was to, uh, was to start taking a stab in the dark at which constitutional amendment allows for a woman to have an abortion. But there is no amendment which legalized abortion, for the record. Uh, it was Roe v. Wade that legalized abortion. But I asked her if the law of the Constitution is the basis for her morality, pointing out that if the law of the land determines what is moral, if the law determines what is morally good, then it was once moral and good for plantation owners to have slaves because the law once allowed it. So I asked her, do you think that? And of course, she, she had nothing to say. Uh, she had nothing to say. But a young man jumped in at this point, and he said this. He said, well, you should just let people do whatever they want to do, which is kind of a funny thing to say considering that he was telling me to leave. Uh, so I said to him, why are you telling me to leave if I want to be out here, if you really believe that people should be free to do whatever they want to do? Do you see how silly, how ridiculous, how inconsistent, how illogical this rejection of absolute truth is? It exposes the problem that Western culture is facing, and that is, without God, there is no basis for making any absolute moral judgments or truth claims. People, however, instinctively know that certain things are right and some things are wrong, but A, that instinct does get tainted and seared by sin, and so what we perceive, what we, what we feel is, uh, is morally right or morally wrong gets twisted, gets warped because of, of sin. And secondly, without the existence of God, they have no real basis for any truth claims. If all we are is a bunch of random cells, then whatever I might be saying, it's just random. It's just a, a result of, of chemical processes. And so people are left in the dark about the most important things in life when they reject the truth. They don't know what is right or wrong. They don't know what's true or false. Why? Because they've suppressed the truth about God and their unrighteousness, and they've exchanged the truth about God for a lie. They've exchanged the truth, and Jesus is truth. Jesus himself is the truth. And not only is he the truth, but God's word is the only basis on which we can know what is morally right and morally wrong in an objective sense. If we're just left to guess, we're going to guess wrong. And know this, Jesus Christ is the basis upon which we can be confident and know that, and know with objective knowledge that God is good and that God is is just, and that God is grace and truth, and that life, therefore, has meaning and purpose.
Jesus was and is full of grace and truth. Let's talk about grace. I mean, in one sense, all of humanity has received God's grace, right? We call it common grace. That's, that's what we call the, the grace that even the wicked get. The Bible tells us that the heart of man is desperately wicked and that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It tells us that the wage of sin is death. In other words, all that any of us deserve is death is eternal separation from God's grace. All that we deserve is to to die and be cast into a lake of fire for all of eternity. That's all our deeds. That's all of our best that's all that our best deeds have merited for us. That's all sinners have ever earned. The best that we have to offer is like filthy rags to God. In other words, we have absolutely nothing purely good within us. And we are inclined toward evil constantly by nature. And yet, God doesn't just give up and throw all of creation into hell, even though it would be perfectly just for him to do that. He allows even the wicked to thrive. Not just to continue living, but sometimes to to thrive and to continue rebelling and striving to break free of any and every moral restraint that God has ordained for humanity. And so in that sense, there's no one who hasn't received common grace because even the wicked continue to live and continue to enjoy life. So we have to see that this is just, this is grace. That anybody doesn't get thrown into hell immediately upon sinning, is common grace. And even common grace, friends. Even common grace is amazing. The fact that God allows sinners to persist in their rebellion. The the fact that God allows sinners to enjoy the best things that the world has to offer is absolutely astounding. And yet, if common grace is so beautiful, how much more beautiful is the grace that is found in Christ Jesus. And that's not common grace. That's called saving grace. This isn't grace that allows you to just continue uninterrupted down the path that leads to hell. This isn't the kind of grace that that allows you to continue living in a rebellious, God-hating manner. No, this is grace that invades the life of the Christian. It redeems us. It changes us. It transforms us. It opens the eyes of our hearts to behold the glory of Christ. And it enables us to understand the truth about ourselves, the truth about our lostness, and about God and His goodness and His provision for our salvation. Writing about the power of God to show spiritual truth to fallen sinners and on the impossibility of fallen sinners understanding spiritual truth apart from grace. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. He says, My message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith would not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. What he's saying there, is he didn't fancy it up to try to manipulate them emotionally into making some kind of profession of faith. 
He was relying on the power of God in the simplicity of the gospel and the, 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 the ugliness uh, that man sees in the gospel, the, 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 the vileness of it. Man hates the idea that he's so corrupt, so evil, that he needs somebody to stand in his place. But he goes on to say, Paul says, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their foolishness to him. And he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. So how does anybody ever understand? Saving grace. Saving grace. In our day and age, much of evangelical or evangelifish Christianity views doctrine, that is, spiritual truth, as something that you can just take or leave, depending on your perspective, or de- depending on where you come from, or depending on what makes you feel good about it. This is nothing but a subtle undermining of the authority of Scripture. If Scripture is something that you can take or leave, depending on what you like and what you don't like, it has no authority. You have the authority, if that's true. You are not free, however. I am not free. We are not free to have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward the Word of God. Let me say that again, because this is so important that we understand this. We are not free to have a take-it-or-leave-it attitude toward the Word of God. Rather, when we're confronted by the truth of Scripture, when we're confronted with the truth of the Gospel, we're confronted with the reality of, that something outside of ourselves, is true for all people, in all places, in all times, regardless of perspective and regardless of preference. You're confronted in the gospel with the fact that man has fallen. That's a doctrine. That he's fallen, that man has fallen, unable to impart life to himself, and by nature he is hostile toward God and follows the world, the devil, and the flesh. That's Uh, Ephesians chapter 2. You're confronted also with the fact that God is holy and just and thus must punish all sin. This is doctrine. This is not take it or leave it type of stuff. You're also confronted with the truth that God is long-suffering and slow to anger and sent His only Son, His unique one-of-a-kind Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to bear His wrath against the sin of all who would repent and believe in Him. Do you believe these things? Because if you don't, you will surely perish. You have no defense before God on the day of judgment because those sins need to be punished. And if Christ didn't take them upon himself, you have them upon yourself. But if you do believe these things, if you believe the truth about your fallenness, if you believe the truth about your need for a Savior and the offer of forgiveness through faith in Christ Jesus, it didn't come to you by the wisdom of man. It came to you by saving grace. It came to you by God invading your life with His grace that the eyes of your heart may behold the glory of Christ. It came by grace, a grace that is found in Christ alone. And so this is Jesus. This is the biblical Jesus we're talking about. He is the full revelation of God's glory. He is full of grace and truth. 
And because Jesus alone is fully God and fully man, only Jesus reveals the grace and truth of God to us. Our eternal destiny rests. It stands upon how we respond to the truth that grace is only found in Jesus Christ. And so I leave you with two eternal, unchanging truths. Things that are true for all people, in all places, at all times, regardless of perspective, regardless of where they come from. Two truths. Number one, this offer of receiving not just common grace, which allows the wicked to persist in their rebellion, but this offer to receive saving grace, forgiveness, reconciliation with God through faith in Christ Jesus is an invitation to the worst of sinners, to even the vilest and most wretched sinners to come to him and to find peace and rest for their souls, redemption in the blood of Christ. If you think that you can't come to Christ because of something that you've done, you don't understand the depths of God's grace. Deeper than any sin. Greater than any sin. No matter how much you sin, He's got more than enough grace to cover it. So whatever you might have done, there are no excuses. His grace can cover even the worst sins, even the worst sinners. That's the first truth. The second truth, the truth of having received saving grace, the truth of having received forgiveness, having received reconciliation with God through faith in Christ alone is exactly why we as His people should continually set our gaze upon Christ. Why we should continually come to Him taking full advantage of every sanctifying grace that He has provided. When I say sanctifying grace, I'm saying something that you grow from doing. Things like going to church, things like reading your Bible, praying. Those are called sanctifying graces. The truth of having received saving grace is exactly why we should continually set our gaze to Him, coming to Him, taking full advantage of these sanctifying graces He has provided. Prayer, communion, which we do on the first Sunday of every month, hearing the preaching of the Word, the fellowship of the saints, studying the Bible. We, we must take advantage of these things in order that our hearts and mind may constantly and continually remain fixed on Jesus. In order that our gaze and our attention may not wander. So I leave you with the words of Second Peter. Chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. I'll close with this. He says, Be on your guard, so that you are not carried away, carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but, here's the imperative, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Let's pray.
Our most gracious Father, thank you for your word. And Father, the, the depths of this single verse are deeper than we can fathom, deeper than we can reach. That you would send your only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to take on flesh and to live a perfect, sinless life, the life that we should have lived, and to die a sinner's death, the death that we deserve to die. Lord, how can we wrap our minds around that? Only by your grace does any of this even make sense to us. Only by your grace can we see the unfathomable wisdom in the gospel. And so we thank you, Lord, for sending Christ full of grace, full of truth to reveal your glory. And Father, even though we only see dimly now, forgive us for the times when we turn our gaze away. Forgive us for the times when we set our gaze and our attention on things that pale in comparison to the glory of Christ. And we thank you that forgiveness is found in him, in his blood that was shed for the remission of our sins. Thank you that we can walk before you, not in filthy rags of unrighteousness, but in Christ's perfect robes of righteousness, imputed to us, transferred to us, not on our own merit, but on Christ's merit. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your grace, your common grace and your saving grace. And thank you for the truth of your word. May we set our gaze more fully on Christ until the day you call us home, that Christ would be glorified in our lives. In his name we pray. Amen. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me deeper.